Welcome to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast, featuring leadership author and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff, and Barna President, David Kinneman. This podcast delivers unprecedented insights every week into how church leaders are navigating constant change in an era of disruption and discusses new digital tools to help you stay connected in real time to the people in your church. And now, your hosts, Carrie Newhoff and David Kinneman. Well, welcome to Church Pulse Weekly. It's Carrie Newhoff here along with David Kinneman, and we got uh, something fun and new today, don't we? We absolutely do. Hey, how are you doing, Carrie? I'm doing great. It was really good to be in Atlanta recently for uh, the State of Your Church webinar. We, we've been doing this show for two years, and I had not seen you in person for all said two years. So it was just great to actually—well, re- we did meet in L.A. Uh, earlier this year, but— you know, yeah, to do it work was like together. six weeks ago, though. So, so essentially, it's been uh, two full years. And it, when you said that just a second ago, in my brain, I literally thought, no, it's been only one year, but it has been two, two years. And uh, it really is, uh, it feels like dog years, doesn't it? COVID has uh, ruined any sense of time. In many ways, it feels like yesterday and it feels like a thousand years ago. I don't know what that is. And we have a special guest. We're going to talk about work, we're going to talk about jobs, we're going to talk about the great resignation and sort of the, the the talent scarcity that there seems to be in a lot of industries, including in the church field. And standing by, we've got an incredible guest, Patrick Lencioni, today. A lot of you know Patrick. I'll give him a formal introduction in a few minutes. But uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the data that we have unearthed that sort of gives us a, a snapshot of where we are in the moment and everything that's happened over the last couple of years, David. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And uh, when we first started the pandemic and over those first few months, I joked that I had 25 years of social research experience in order to understand what was happening in terms of spiritual practice and behavior and belief and expectations related to church and you know digital Easter and all the rest. I sort of feel like we've had 25 years now of, of research to practice social research on what people are thinking about in terms of their work, their vocation, their purpose, the workplace. So much is changing in relation to the workplace. Um, it's it's kind of scary, but it's also like really fun for us as social researchers to think about how this is sort of opening up new vistas for people when it comes to work, calling, jobs, vocational satisfaction, working from home. Um, it really is a, a whole new era for us to lead, whether we're in spiritual leadership, you know, sort of church leaders, and what things about the, the teams we're leading on our on our staffs. Uh, and then also how we think about you know ministering today in a world where there is so much disruption when it comes mm. to the world of work. So we've got some brand new data that I'm I'm eager to dive in with you on. Okay, great. So uh, where do you want to start? Well, uh, one of the first things I'd like to talk about is just this idea of the Great Resignation and people losing jobs, changing jobs. You know, we've been reported on this uh, show before that 38% of pastors have thought seriously about quitting ministry in the last year. That's a, a huge increase from uh, r- roughly 12 months into the into the pandemic, like like t- 18, tw- uh, 20 months into the pandemic, 38% said they want to quit. And we also see in our general population data among those who are working, one in five U.S. adults, 19%, have left the job for a new employment opportunity since the beginning of the pandemic. And then one in four U.S. adults, 26%, have lost the job since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Some of those are overlapping, but overall, we see that a huge percentage of Americans are either looking for new jobs or are wondering about jobs or have lost a job. So there has been quite a reset, unlike anything we've really seen um, in recent memory. 
Wow. Those are, those are huge stats. You know, it was interesting. I was reading a piece just in a Toronto newspaper yesterday about the law scene in downtown Toronto, which is where I cut my teeth. And uh, they're offering really good salaries, but they've had to up their base pay by about 20 or 30% in the last year. And then even with that, a lot of Canadian law school grads are ending up in the U.S. because the money is better and the opportunity is better. There just does seem to be like a, a very strange level of disruption that we haven't seen before. Um, what else are you seeing that you want to comment on before we bring Pat in, David? Well, obviously, one of the huge changes that the pandemic brought on was this shift towards remote work and sort of the the flexibility related to geography. So, you know, currently we see that 36% of uh, the workforce is working exclusively in person now two years uh, into the pandemic, so one in three. About a quarter are working at home or, rem- or remote or just some in person. And then uh, 29% are working exclusively at home or remote. So again, just 36% exclusively in person, uh, 24%, uh, some at home, some remote, um, and, and uh, some in person. So kind of a hybrid and 29% um, at home at, and remote exclusively. So we have a much more distributed workforce. Some industries do more of that than, than others, but we, we recognize that's quite a, a, quite a different picture than the one we saw before the pandemic. Um, and, and so when we think of then about, you know, the, the spiritual realities of leading people through these, these moments of like, what am I made for? What, what, what are the opportunities? Am I called to something? You know, how do I, how do I, um, manage, you know, sort of all these new dynamics that weren't there? Of course, we, we know there's a lot of data, uh, about the impact on, on moms and working, working moms, um, especially so as they sort of care for younger children, sort of were, were thrust into a role of, of you know, in, in, uh, educating their kids. That's, that's shifting a little bit now as most schools are sort of back into some sort of more regular motion. But the, the, the long-term impact of what this means then for, for women and for working women, uh, working moms, um, and, and really just sort of all of us as, with, with, you know, talking today to spiritual leaders, Christian, Christian leaders, but like how we're going to minister with with sort of a, a real sense of understanding the disruption that so many people have gone through in terms of questioning their calling, wondering what they're here for, how they're going to make a difference in the world, how they're going to make a living, especially when so many of them have lost jobs. Um, you know, again, what a what a challenging set of opportunities, but also what a what a really cool moment we have uh, as we try to help people navigate some of these fundamental questions of why they're here and what are they made for. Hmm. Well, let's bring Pat in and let me introduce you to Pat. Pat Trichlencioni is the founder and president of The Table Group. It's a firm dedicated to providing uh, organizations with ideas, products, and services to improve teamwork, clarity, and employee engagement. He has written 12 best-selling books, over 7 million copies sold, which is pretty impressive. After 20 years in print, his classic book, The Five Dysfunctions of the Team, remains a fixture on national bestsellers list. His most recent book is The Motive, one that I absolutely love and would highly recommend. You know, it would be an interesting reread right now after <laughs> everything we've been through in the last two years. Actually, I read it right when it came out. It was probably two or three years ago. Uh, and he has also pioneered something in the last year or so called Working Genius. And for those of you who are listening, which would be all of you, that's a podcast pet peeve of mine, by the way. For those of you who are listening, of course you're listening. Um, anyway, if you want to discover your working genius, what you can do is you can go to workinggenius.com and enter the promo code Church Pulse, just Church Pulse to receive 20% off. 
Pat, it is such a thrill to have you here today on Church Pulse Weekly. Thanks for joining David and I. Well, it is always a party when I get to talk to you, Carrie, and I get to meet David this time, and I loved hearing that stuff. I'm writing notes over here. I can't wait to talk about all this. Uh Uh-huh. Any reaction to the uh, dislocation and how rapidly things have changed? Like, what are your thoughts on this, Pat? Yeah, you know, I think that there is a silver lining here. Mm. And and that's, you know, we have to put behind whether what happened and wh- whether it was handled well and whether it should have happened the way it did and all that stuff and just say, okay, what's going to come out of this? I think that perhaps there's going to be kind of a renaissance in companies paying attention to the culture of their organizations. Because I really believe that like many organizations, and I know many of these, and mine is certainly one of them because we try to practice what we preach, but there's many organizations that have not had a hard time getting people back to work. They haven't lost people. People haven't said, I don't know if I want to go back to work and all that. And, and those are the ones that people loved being there and they felt, and they were getting the basic things they needed to be engaged. Hmm. The companies that weren't engaged before and it was all about money and it was just purely an economic decision, those are the people whose employees are kind of questioning whether or not, and they're saying, can't we keep working at home? And maybe I, sh- I don't want to work anymore. And, and even though there, is some pe- there are some people out there that are entitled, and I know we all want to go, these young kids are just so lazy. But mm-hmm. the truth of the matter is, I think whatever generation you're from, whatever field you're in, if you loved being at work, you are glad to go back and re-engage. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't love it before, there has never been a better time to try to get out of that. And so when people say, and, and Apple computer, we'll use that as an example. Everybody thinks working at Disney or Apple is a party, but many times organizations with a brand like that are actually, the shadow culture is very strong hmm. because they can afford to not have a great culture because everybody wants to work there because it's great on their resume or they can tell people at parties, I work at Apple or I work at Disney. But the truth is a, a lot of employees at Apple are like, we don't want to go back. And I can't believe you're not letting us work from home three days a week. Well, I think that if they were getting what they needed when they were at work, they wouldn't be thinking that. Now, I know there are people that are like, but I have people to take care of and I have kids and I have other issues. But this is not what the great resignation is about. The great resignation is about people going, I have not had to put up with this crap at work for two years. I don't think I want to. But I'm going to tell you, like Dave Ramsey is a friend of mine. You know who Dave is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well. Yeah. Their employees all came back to work very fast. And they had no, because that's like, that place is on fire. Hmm. But, but there's other companies where nobody wants to go back and people are like, oh, should we pay them more? Or we sh-? Well, what you really should do is build the kind of culture that attracts people. And yes, inflation is changing, you might want to adjust, but people are overpaying to get people back because what they're doing is they're paying a tax on having a culture that's not very fulfilling. I believe that. I believe that. Pat, in some way, you know, when you talk about your career and you've been doing this for over two decades now, you've, I've heard you say that at the beginning, it felt like you were the odd voice, the person out there in the field all by yourself talking about these soft issues and executives are like, but how does this impact the bottom line? And, you know, your message definitely gained a lot of steam over the years. But we've been talking on this show about crisis being a disruptor, but also an accelerator. Do you feel like for some reason the whole conversation about culture just got accelerated five or 10 years and suddenly it's at our doorstep or is that a misread? 
What would you say? No, no, I think you're exactly right. I have never said that, but a crisis is an accelerator, and this crisis has accelerated the importance of actually giving employees what they need to feel good about work. You know, money is a is a satisfier, not a driver. Do you know what the difference is? A driver is something you want more and more of in life. A, a satisfier is once you get enough of it, any more of it is really very rapidly diminishing marginal returns. So when we throw more money at people who are already paid well, they're like, I'm not going to turn it down, but I'm not loving working here anymore because it's just a, a paycheck. You, only, you don't get to experience it every moment. But the three things, I wrote a book years ago about employee engagement, and the three things people really want in their jobs are they want to be known. They want their manager and other people up the food chain to actually be interested in who they are, both professionally and personally. They want to know that their job matters, that what they do really changes somebody's life in some way, large or small. And they want to know that there's some way that they can assess their success for themselves. They don't have to depend on somebody else, but they can see the impact of what they're doing. When people have those three things, you have to pay them enough to feel good, but they are self-motivated and and, and relationship-motivated in the organization. And that's what companies need to do. But too many people who think this is all a a financial or an intellectual game are just going to go figure out how much more do we have to pay them. They're, they're, they're failing to calculate the cost of people being, well, I called my book that I wrote, um, the three signs of a miserable job. And I had to retitle it. I wondered if that was that book. Yeah. Right. Now we call it the truth about employee engagement. But if you have a miserable job, no amount of pay is going to make you feel good about it. And the, and, and, and com- some companies are, are trying to calculate just how much. And it'd be like, they're going to be paying people in the drive-thru at Burger King a million dollars because that's how much it's going to take to get people to go back to work. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, you think we have mostly church leaders listening to this podcast. And uh, this is my amateur theory, but I think churches tend to either overpay or underpay. There's a few outliers you hear about in the media from time to time where, it's like, oh, this guy got, you know, gold-plated this and drives a Ferrari or whatever, whatever. I think that's a very tiny sliver. That's the minority of the situation. That is the tiny yeah, minority. Yeah. yeah. And the vast majority probably are on the lower side of the pay scale or the poor side of the pay scale. So I, I really believe in a living wage. I think that's important. But that aside, what are some of the other things? Because leaders are going, well, we've never really been able to, to compete on pay, the marketplace is always going to pay more. So what are some of the things that leaders could do to really raise, like improve the culture and raise a level of employee engagement and satisfaction that don't necessarily require a a pay raise? Well, I love, first of all, I would love to talk about churches now because I do a ton of my work in churches now, Yeah, you do, especially more and more. And now what's one of the things I'm going to do is spend more time working in organizations like that. So I have a lot of opinions about church life. And I think that one of the things I like to say is when I go into work in a church, I say to people that work there, hey, what's more important, this this organization or that software company making a billion dollars down the street or that marketing firm or whatever else? And they'll kind of hesitate and they'll go, well, 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 this one. And I say, absolutely. I mean, think about the, think about what's at stake. Think about what you're doing versus what they're doing. And then I say, so um, why do, are there standards for behavior and, and, and work higher than yours? And nobody ever argues with me. They always say, oh, crap. And, and, and the answer should be, well, they pay more and all those other things. But the, the truth of the matter is, you know what drives people away from churches? Mediocrity. Yes. <laughs> when, when we accept things in a church environment that we wouldn't accept 
in a for-profit company, which makes no sense at all because the church is more important. Nobody can argue that what Apple does or what any other Southwest Airlines does or what Disney does is more important than any church. And yet somehow we say, but since we're not paying them a lot, we probably should expect less of them. And that is a great way to attract employees who have no standards and to repel people who really, really want to work there. And I actually believe that that we could actually have more great employees in churches and pay them adequately. But if we create an environment that rivals or surpasses Southwest Airlines, it's going to be a game changer. But to do that, we have to shift this idea. And it's not just about work hours. It's about, it's about expectations of behavioral excellence and the way we treat one another and that we have more good conflict around excellence and stop thinking that we just have to be nice to one another. So I know I threw a lot of things out there, but nobody wants to work in an organization where you're supposed to be nice to each other at the expense of actually accomplishing your mission. And too many churches fit that description. Can you uh, can we tug on that string a little bit more? Why sure. why is mediocrity such a repellent to great leadership? Gosh, you know, I was reading a spiritual book yesterday, and I can't remember what it was, but mediocrity was a word in it, or it might have been a prayer, and I remember just going, "Wow, that's it." Oh no, it was this morning. I I was reading. There's a book called The Better Part, and there's this priest who wrote it. It's a, it's a daily. And he talked about mediocrity in it. And I don't, I think we human beings have a, you know, St. Augustine said our hearts will not rest until they rest in God. Well, God is the essence of all excellence. He's truth. And mediocrity is saying, I'm willing to settle for something less than that. And I think that's even true in like a secular activity when we don't do our best and it doesn't turn out that well and we settle for it. I think that there is a natural part of us that kind of goes, ah, that's, this isn't the best I could do. I think we have a desire to be the best versions of ourselves. And whether you work at Southwest Airlines or at a church, if you're settling, it it kind of it kind of hurts. And if you haven't, and, and there are some people in the world, wounded people, God bless them, who are actually okay with that and they get used to that. And that's actually a violation of their dignity to allow them to settle into that. But there are people that are seeking that, that don't want to be held accountable, that don't want to be pushed, don't want to be uncomfortable. I mean, imagine Jesus and the, and, the, and the apostles, if he was like, yeah, that, that's okay. That's, that's good enough, right? You don't, if you were uncomfortable standing up for me and preaching and loving on these difficult people, that's all right. Just, just do whatever you're comfortable with. That's, that wasn't going to attract anybody. Right. And so what we need to do is make our churches and every organization have that sense of excellence. And then what we need to do is say, it's actually worth arguing with one another about the best way to serve. But when I go to a church and people know that the music is bad or know that this ministry isn't good or know that the liturgy or the service isn't good, but they don't debate it and they don't say, it's, I'm uncomfortable because it, it, it needs to be better and people aren't coming to know Jesus because of that and we're not allowed to debate that and push one another, why would you want to work there? Hmm. You know? So anyway, I, I, I'm, and David, feel free to jump in anytime. I can see you have some thoughts there. Yeah, I think um, this question that is coming up in the data is around this sort of sacred secular divide, and and um, you know, actually, I think this notion that a lot of church leaders think their work is less important than the mainstream is is, is actually 
probably pretty true, like you said said earlier. In fact, when we talk to workers, they actually believe that the work of churches is more important than their work. And so there is still this interesting sacred-secular divide that that exists. And then I'm, I'm wondering, um, when you talk about these principles of, of you know, excellence and sort of being better than, than a mainstream workplace, there's been a, a lot of debate, I think, within uh, church circles. I've been, my dad was a senior pastor of a large church in Phoenix, and, you know, we work with church staffs here at Barna for, for decades. Um, how do you find this sort of deeper, deeper magic about what it means to be great employees and great workers that isn't just sort of deriving insights from the marketplace? Like, like I, I love the language of the marketplace for the marketplace, but how do we, how do we translate that into what it means to do ministry? So we don't just use, you know, maybe the same concepts. Like, how do we, how do we actually re-enliven as church leaders what it means to be fully alive in in our work? Um, is there thoughts that you have about that? About sort of closing that sacred secular divide between you know the way we think about that in in church work? Actually, you know what's funny? I I find that so I'm a uh, I grew up a Christian, but um, obviously we're, none of us are grandchildren of God. We have to it has to be our own faith. And so as an adult, I've, mm-hmm. I've had a reversion, if you will. And so it, I've only discovered this later that, um, let me see, if I want to be able to say this one. I hope I answer your question. When I, the, you're, you're totally right. People that work in the secular world look at churches and they go, oh my gosh, they're doing the most important thing. But the people that work in churches mm-hmm. think, oh, well, mine, obviously they don't put mine on TV and they don't, and frankly, you don't even see churches in movies and television. So they, they feel like they're, so they, they think mine's not important. At least not without being the old guy who's like the, the fuddy-duddy who's doing the, the, the marriage or the burial, or he looks yes. completely out of touch with reality. Always exactly. the stereotype, every time. Oh, it's crazy. And so I, um, I want to go back to those three things that I think people want in their work. Okay, think about this. So then, and, and I, I completely believe this. The number one thing people want is to be known. So if you work in a church and the pastor, and if it's a big church, the pastor can't be the only one because they can't know everybody, but your manager is like totally invested in your life, both in your job and in your career aspirations and in your family and in your personal life and all those things. That is more valuable than anything. Athletes who make millions of dollars a year, and I've worked in, on teams, if the coach isn't interested in them as a person, they're unhappy and they're mm. making millions of dollars to play a child's game for half the year and they're still unhappy. Okay. So if you're known and even in churches, we tend to think, oh, well, they don't, we don't need to do that here. We're, 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 we're ministering to the people in the pews. No, you have to minister first to your employees. Okay. But the second one is the big one. Is your work relevant? Now, the fact is most people in the world struggle to, to come up with relevance in their job. Now, unless right. you're a, and I, I use this in all my secular talks, if you're a priest or a pastor or a, or a surgeon maybe, or a school teacher or a firefighter or something like that, okay, everybody knows why you do what you do. But for most of us, it's like, how does my job make somebody's life better? Now, the fact of the matter is everybody's job needs to do that. If you're a waiter, you can make that person's evening experience great. If you're uh, selling insurance, you can make people feel more comfortable about what they're doing in their life. But, but being a pastor or working at a church has the highest, easiest possibility of understanding why your job is relevant. But you know something? We stop reminding people. Like what should be happening in churches is pastors and everybody else, every time they see somebody changing somebody's life in some way, which is probably, oh, I don't know, every day, we should be stopping noticing, celebrating that, 
and reminding people how cool it is that you just changed someone's life by introducing them to Jesus or comforting them. This, to me, is like such an advantage that a church has over almost every other kind of organization. And the reason why we have to pay lawyers so much money is because they get to experience that almost never. And that's not a slight (laughs) on lawyers. But honestly, the reason why... I would hate to be a lawyer. You were a lawyer at one point, Carrie. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Briefly. Yeah. Right. And the thing is, they need to get paid more money because that's, that's, it's very tedious and you don't get that sense of like, I'm changing the world. But when you work in a church, but so, so the thing is, when we don't constantly, daily catch people changing somebody's life, calling it out, sitting in it, celebrating it, thanking God for it, we might as well be taking money out of the collection basket and throwing it in the fire because that's the currency and it's the best currency for anybody. So churches have an advantage. Every day you go, hey, whose life are you going to turn upside down today in a great way? Is it going to be a youth? Is, are you going to sing something that's going to elevate somebody? Are you going to counsel somebody? Are you going to bring them and give a homily? Are you going to do the sacraments? That's an advantage. And they did downplay it because you know why? Because they go, I don't want to remind them they already know that. When they join the church, we talk to them about how important their job is, and they probably know, and they don't. The receptionist at a church, okay, the receptionist at a church, there's two ways we can treat them. You are the front lines of evangelizing. You are the face of Jesus Christ. When somebody walks in this door, whether they're here to fill out a form or to join the church or to deliver a freaking package, you are the first face they see. I want to inspire you. I want to talk to you about what that is. I want you to tell me stories about how you do that well. Or we can say, hey, you're the receptionist. Here's what you have to do. And she or he can feel like they work at an insurance company. And Mm. too many people that work in churches feel like they work at an insurance company. Why in the world would you want that? So I guess what I'm saying is these fundamental things, are you known? Do you know why your job matters? And then the last one is, how can we measure the impact of what we do? But it's not measurement like, um, like super, super quantitative, because if we do that, we start measuring the wrong things like collections or the number of people. That come. But like, we have to figure out a way to ass- help people assess, like, I think I'm really doing a good job. And it's often quality, like, talk to the people, let's, let's get together and let's talk to the people we're serving and find out what's going on in their life. Let's, let's look at the number of people that are actually accessing what we're offering and it's changing their lives. So anyway, I guess what I'm saying to you, David, that was a long answer that says, we already have an advantage and it's those three things. The one disadvantage we have is we can't pay them more. And that's not even the most important thing. Hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the things that strikes me when I, when I hear, when I hear you saying all that is, um, that one of the big shifts that I think that the pandemic is reminding us of is the importance of the laity, of the priesthood of all believers, of, of having an engaged and volunteered, active, volunteer and active. And, and a lot of what you're talking about, I mean, you've made most of your comments in relation to staffing within churches, which is really critical for our, our listeners. But also, I think you've really laid out some case to be made for like a new vision for volunteerism. Thoughts on that? Like, and, and I'll just give you a couple stats that's really interesting. This is bonus material. Only one in four practicing Christians say they understand or know their gifting abilities and skills. Only 23% of practicing Christians, they know it extremely well. Only 30% of practicing Christians have ever taken an assessment inventory or test that was designed to help them better understand their giftings, abilities, or talents. 
So we're sitting on an absolute goldmine of trying to help people develop and who they are made to be. And the church hasn't really deployed. And those are essentially a little higher than the average among all U.S. adults, but they're essentially not much better. So we have this place where we can really help people identify, mobilize, deploy on mission with their giftings. And we haven't really been able to do that. But I think a lot of the language you've described actually could be part of the the way we recruit, retain, and deploy uh, volunteers as well and p- participants in the gospel. I'm so excited that you asked about this. So this working genius tool, which I developed by accident, me and my team, a, a, a year and a half ago. So it's brand out of the, brand new. We didn't do it to develop a tool. We did it to explain why I was struggling in my job at times in a place where I worked with people I loved and I did what I loved. But there were some things about it that were really frustrating me. And that we figured out I was actually doing a lot of tasks that God didn't gift me in, but I felt like I had to do. And it was allow it was not allowing me to access the talents I, to use the talents that God gave me, and so that's how this came about. And right after we did it, you know, everybody from the private sector and churches were using it, and, and you know, Andy Stanley and his group out there are, are promoting it to the churches they serve. It's it's great. But here's what it comes down to: we, we I decided volunteerism may be one of its greatest applications, because hmm. like like so many people, I went to my church, my parish. I'm Catholic, and I said I'd like to volunteer, and so they go, okay, let's see, you're breathing. And we need those chairs set up. So that's a (laughs) match made in heaven. And then I'm like, well, I don't know if that's my gift, you know, or there's some envelopes that need licking and mailing over there. And, and that's, that's not that it's below me. Don't get me wrong. It's just, I want to do, I want to give my best when I volunteer at church more than anything I do. And if they don't know what my best is, or I don't know what my best is, I can't possibly do that. And so we have staffing organizations that are coming to us now and saying, we want to know the, the working geniuses of the people that are coming here to find jobs. And we want all of our clients to describe the job in the working geniuses and see where there's fit. So when I go to my church, I want to go, and this is, and, and the beauty of this is we priced it ridiculously low. Dave Ramsey said, why'd you price it so low? You could have charged 10 times more. And because we want a church to hand somebody this 10 minute assessment and say, fill this out so we know how to, how to use you based on how God made you. Because there's these six talents that are required in any kind of work. There are six different activities and and gifts, and each of us only has two that are like the things that feed us. Two of them we can do for a little bit, but they don't feed us. Two drain us of our energy. Well, the the, the chances that somebody's going to go to a church and volunteer and be fed and feed others is a crapshoot. And it's it's is that thirty percent? If you do the math, is it thirty three percent? We need to start realizing when somebody volunteers, it's a chance to take the very best that God gave them and share that with others. But like you said, David, if they don't know what that talent is. Now, there's one other thing I want to say about volunteers. I, I don't know who said this. I, I don't, I don't, I'm pretty sure I didn't come up with this. In fact, I'm sure I didn't, but I can't remember where I heard this. It was years ago. We should treat volunteers like paid employees and, and have high standards for them and involve them because when they volunteer, they don't care if they're getting paid. They want to do excellent work. And we should treat our paid staff like volunteers and appeal to the sense of mission. But when we look at somebody and say, well, that you're getting paid, so I don't have to motivate you by mission. And you're not getting paid, so I can't expect a lot from you. That's a recipe for failure. You know, I worked at the Make-A-Wish Foundation. I was on the board of directors years, years ago. And they had the most motivated volunteers ever. And people were kill- really wanted to work there as a volunteer. They wanted to volunteer to help kids on their wishes. And I figured out why. And it was because if a person didn't have high standards, they wouldn't let them do it. Hmm. So all the best volunteers were like, yes, 
they're going to hold me accountable as though they paid me to do this. It must be important. Other volunteer organizations, churches included, will go, well, you're volunteering. So, well, if you don't do a very good job, I guess that's all we can expect. Get rid of those volunteers because they're what's keeping your best volunteers from wanting to be there. And when I say get rid of, I don't mean like in an undignified way. I mean, just say, no, we need more from you. And if you can't do more, that's okay. I remember once heard about a church where they said, hey, when you come to, if you, if you joined here and you don't want to volunteer and you don't want to like give and you don't want to be part of the place and, 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 and get involved, then stop by one of those other churches on your way that you passed on the way here because this isn't for you. Those are the churches people are wanting to get into. The other ones are the ones that are dying because mediocrity isn't attractive. So anyway, I'm sorry. I, my oh, answers are far too long, but I'm so excited. So I've got a couple of questions for you. I want to go through the working geniuses. But before that, I don't think I've ever asked you this before, Pat, but you like you, you and your family are very engaged at a local parish. And um, I would love to know, because I think we have Pat Lencioni's in our churches and we're not aware of it. What is an ideal job assignment for Patrick Lencioni? Well, and so I could ask you that, but you were actually a, a pastor. So, but they, they finally started saying, oh my gosh, you could actually help us figure out priorities and, and eliminate things that are noise and focus on what matters most. And you could help us work better as a team. And you could help us inspire others to, you know what I mean? So it was what talking. I do for a living. Right. And, but, but, you know, I, I, I've set up chairs and I've licked envelopes and I've done all those things. Now, finally, I'm getting, because I can explain this to people, and now they're using me a lot, which is beautiful, but, um, but very few churches go about volunteering. Well, see, that's like interesting because I would think, you know, it would be like, well, Patrick Lencioni is one of the most sought after speakers in business. We can't really afford him. Um, he's busy. Does he want to do all of the things that he does during the week as a volunteer yes. on the weekend? Answer that for me. Yes. Yeah. It's like, now, if I had, if I hated my job, don't make me do my job. If yeah. I'm like, I'm a lawyer and accountant, not that there are lawyers and accountants that love their work. Don't get me wrong. But if it, I wouldn't like that. And if I came to work and said, I'm a lawyer and I really want to volunteer, they wouldn't. And, and I hate my job. You shouldn't go, then you should do legal work here. Exactly. For those people that, that know what they're, what makes them go. It's like, I'm a marketing executive. Can you help us market Jesus better to these people in our church? Not that Jesus needs marketing, but they need the on-ramps. Yeah. Tap into that. You know, some of my and, biggest uh, learnings have been when I've found, you know, professionals in the church and brought them in and said, Hey, can you help us figure out this marketing campaign? Can you help us reorganize? Can you help me rethink personnel issues? And they love it and they're so good at it. Yeah. You know, and what's key though, it has to start with the pastor knowing what he or she is good at. Mm. Because you see, if, if the pastor, doesn't gosh, some of our favorite letters we get. We've had about a quarter of a million people take this assessment in the first year, wow. and 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 a lot of church people, which is beautiful. And one pastor wrote in and said, "I've been a pastor for twenty years, and I felt guilty and and shameful about being a pastor because, and that maybe I shouldn't have been a pastor because I'm not good at writing homilies, sermons." And and he goes, "Then I did the working genius. I don't have the first two geniuses, which is wonder." and invention, which is fine because no, no two pastors are the same. He goes, now I realize that's just not God, how God wired me. I'm really more of a counselor hmm. and a, a pastoral person. And I can borrow and, and have other people help me write my homilies and sermons and not feel like a failure. Now think about that. Now there's another pastor who's a W and an I, the first two, wonder and invention. Their, their heads are in the clouds. 
They can go for a walk and write the most amazing homily or sermon, but they might say, you know something that kind of drains me when people are knocking on my door all day. I'm just not great at counseling. And, and it's like, you're not a failure. That's just not your gift. So let's set up a counseling service at the parish or that you don't have to be the primary person because that's not what God gave you. But you know what happens in those cases? Both of those pastors end up feeling guilty. And that's what Working Genius is ultimately about is taking away unnecessary guilt and shame or judgment of so others. Great. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll look at somebody and go, well, she works for me on my, on my staff, but she's not good at, at strategy. It's like, yeah, but she's a genius in these other areas, so let's change her job. We've had, we had a guy at a church come up to us. I mean, he wrote to us and he said, I was get, going to do my performance review and it was not going to be pretty. And I knew that. And I did the working genius and I realized that I was in a job that where I was doing my working frustrations. And so when I went to the performance review, I sat down with him. And I said, I know I've been struggling. I want to show you something. This took him 10 minutes to fill out. I'm, this is what I'm great at. And they looked at it and they were like, well, yeah, no wonder you're struggling. We're going to promote you into another job because you would be brilliant in this job. See, he was a cultural fit for that church, he just didn't, wasn't in the right seat. Do you know how many companies and churches fire people? Not because they're not a cultural fit, but because they're just in the wrong chair. Hmm. But if we don't have language for knowing what that chair is supposed to look like, we've had CEOs in a, an hour after reading their assessment of their team, because we have a team map, look at it and go, well, no wonder we're struggling. Nobody does this. Wait, you have that skill, but your job doesn't use it at all. Why don't we move you into that role and you into that role? Everybody's applauding and everybody's excited. But until you have that language, you can't do it. Pat, this has been fascinating. What I'd love for you to do before we wrap up is for you to just give us the the thumbnail, the bird's eye view of the six working geniuses, and then we'll tell people how they can get connected. Great. So it goes from 50,000 feet to five feet, you know, like head in the clouds in a plane and landing the plane. The first genius is the gift of wonder. That's like people that like to ponder and and think about things and sit with things. They're constantly looking at the world going, why is it like this? Could it be better? They don't necessarily know the answer, but they love to ponder. And that's a genius. It's a genius. I had a company, nobody could do that. It was a software company, billion, billion dollar thing. They were way behind in the market for 10 years. They said, none of us wonder. We never sit around and go, maybe customers don't like what we do. They're always like spreadsheet analysis and everything else. So wonder is the first one, 50,000 feet. Then we go to the next one. Somebody wonders, somebody else says, that's a good problem to wonder about. Let me try to solve it. That's invention. Some people love to come up with new ideas out of nothing. And they can just go, yeah, let me take a shot at that. And that's fun. Other people I know, brilliant people say, don't make me invent something. I will kill you because this is not a gift of mine. It frustrates me. Okay, the next, so it goes wonder. And then invention comes down to 40,000 feet. And then we go, somebody has to discern the invention. The gift of discernment is... And it's not magic, of course. It's They have the gift of, of intuition and instinct and pattern recognition. They're the kind of people you go to and ask for advice, and they always give you good advice. Even if they're not an expert, they just have good judgment. They see the bigger picture, and they say, "Here's yes, this will work. I have a woman in my office. Her name is Tracy. Everybody asks Tracy for her advice about anything because she has great judgment. Discernment is a gift. The next one is galvanizing. Some, once you discern that invention that the wanderer identified, then you've got to galvanize. You've got to go, let's get people in a room, inspire them and sell to them and get them moving. 
I love what I'm doing with you. I don't like to galvanize. I don't mm. like to constantly remind people, keep them moving. I was doing it all the time for more than 20 years in my job. And I'd come to work excited to invent and discern. And I'd have to galvanize all day long. And it was killing me. But some people wake up every morning and go, please let me galvanize people. Let me motivate. Let me push. Let me inspire and do it again and again and again. The next one is one that people don't think is actually a genius, and it is. It's called enablement. Not enabling an alcoholic or a drug addict, but enabling people to do what they need to do. They come alongside. Somebody says, I need help, and they're the ones that go, I want to help you. I know what you need. I'll help you on your terms. This gets me excited. The gift of enablement, without it in an organization, things fall down. The last gift is the gift of tenacity. Some people wake up every day and like to finish things. They get inspired by taking, say, we made our number, we hit our standards, we finished, it's good, we're done. I have none of that. <laughs> I write a book, I get 80% of the way through it, and I'm done. I don't want to, I'm like, and my, my editor who has tea says, no, I'm going to make you finish, get back in that room until it's finished and it's finished well. But that's okay because that's just not me. So it goes wonder at 50,000 feet, invention, discernment, galvanizing, enablement and tenacity. Hmm. Two of them we love. God gave us a gift that, we, that gives us joy and energy. Two of them drain us of our joy and energy. We need to know those just as well. So anyway, that was more than a thumbnail, I think. Oh, that's fantastic. And just a reminder to those of you who would like to take the assessment and haven't done it, you um, <clears throat> can go to, what is, what is the website for that, uh, Pat? Workinggenius.com. Use the promo code. So the discount for a 20% off, so that's five bucks. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Is uh, Church Pulse. So it's $20 to take this. Boy, marriage, we had a guy write in and say, I thought my wife hated me. And, and he said, now, not really, but I kind of did because for years he was an inventor and for years he'd come up with an invention. And you know what she would do? She would tell him why it might not work or what he needed to change about it. And he thought she was against him. They took the assessment on their anniversary she was a discerner. Her gift was to give somebody feedback and warn them about something that might not work or give them advice. She wow. was actually loving him and he thought, and when they took it, they said it changed their marriage. Wow. So anyway, it, anyway, it's a ministry. That, it's a wonderful ministry. It's changed my marriage. I can tell you that's changed my relationship with my kids. Pat, this has been so encouraging and so inspiring. I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has uh, been a real treat. I just love any time we get to spend together and to be with us on Church Pulse Weekly is a real joy. And thanks for your passion for the local church. It comes through in every conversation, uh, but it's just wonderful that you get to build into thousands of church leaders here. We're really grateful for you. Thank you. Well, praise God for all of that. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So anyway, thank you so much uh, for tuning in to this edition of Church Pulse Weekly. We'll be back next time. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so wherever you're listening. David and I will be back next time with a fresh episode. Thank you for listening to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast. Join us next week for more insights on navigating constant change in an era of disruption and how to stay connected to the people in your church.